Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we're going to look at this passage again this week, verses 1 through 10. Last week we spent the majority of our time in verses 1 through 3. This week we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10, but with the backdrop of that first three verses, that understanding being very important. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we come as a people who at one time could not and would not understand, but now as a people who can and should understand. Father, we pray that as we come to Your Word that You would increase our desire to understand the things therein, and change our hearts that we might follow after your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I mentioned the Lord of the Rings. This week I'm going to mention another movie. I guess Lord of the Rings isn't a movie, but you know, it is too. Uh, this week, when I read this passage, particularly this idea of us coming to life, it made me think of the movie, The Matrix, the first movie. The other ones aren't that good, so don't watch those, but just watch the first one if you're, if you're old enough to watch that movie. It's actually a really good movie, and I think it has some neat themes in it. Obviously, it's a movie. You know, it's, there's this guy named Neo in it, and he starts off in this fictional place called The Matrix. Well, he's later brought out of this fictional place. He's, quote-unquote, brought to life, as it were, and he's shown the world as it really is, which is a dystopian, barren world that is ruled by robots. See, it's a movie. One of the big tensions in the movie, though, is Neo's character coming to grips with this new outlook on the way the world really is, being brought to life, being made to understand the way things actually are in the world. As we consider Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 again today, we'll be focusing our attention on the idea that in Christ, we, as the people of God, have been made alive. We have been brought to life, much like Neo, into a realization of how the world really is. That we are sinners, that the world is, that the world is full of sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. Not only that, we come to realize that the world is a place that is completely destroyed by sin and that we have been called to be agents of Christ's redemptive work in this fallen world. In our passage today, we'll see one of the great turnarounds that we have in all of scripture where the text completely flips on itself with two words, but God. And because of these two words, we all have hope. The world that we live in has hope. Jesus came not only to save his people from their sins, but to redeem all of creation, delivering it from the curse of sin and death. So as we move through this passage, we'll see that it's through his people that Jesus plans to begin that work. As we look at the second half of this passage today, we'll consider it in three main points. He has made us alive, He seated us in heaven, and He has prepared us for good works. 
So with that, let's look together at the text. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Again, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, or were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for some context, remember last week we talked about what it means when the apostle writes, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The idea of being dead in our sin goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The first sins of Adam and Eve, the outworking of that sin is that man is unable to initiate a relationship with God because he by nature is an enemy with God. Not only is he an enemy, but he doesn't understand the things of God and he wouldn't seek God anyway if he did. People in their sin are called sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Their nature is the sin nature and in it they are dead. That is what makes the beginning of verse 4 so striking. But God. There's a complete turnaround, meaning that whatever was just previously stated, we are now going to have to reconsider those words in light of the words we're getting ready to read. That's good, especially considering the context of chapter 1, which God says he has a people for himself that he plans to redeem. And then we just got through reading, well, everybody's dead in their sins. If God is a people for himself, but all mankind is by nature dead in their sins and their trespasses, then there has to be an intervention outside of man. Man cannot save himself, so he must be made alive. Verse 4 represents that necessary change that must take place. God must intervene if he is to follow through with his stated plans, to have a people for himself, to choose them, Adopt them, justify them, and guarantee their salvation. He has to take them from death and make them alive. And that brings us to our first point, he made us alive. Look again at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we read here that God changed the fortunes of the dead and their trespasses and sins because of two of his qualities. This doesn't mean that these are the only two qualities that cause God to make us alive. God is inexhaustible 
But these are the two that we are given. We read that he is rich in mercy and that he has a great love for us. As we've traveled through the Old Testament, we've been, we've been in the Old Testament quite a bit here at Redeemer. We've seen this in the way that how he, how he loves his people. And that if we were just to have been in the, the Old, or the New Testament all of our time, we wouldn't have quite grasped it the way that when we go to the Old Testament and see how dead in their trespasses the people of God actually were. I've frequently heard this question from people, why do you preach so much out of the Old Testament? And I always answer the same way, so that I can better understand the new. When I read that God is rich in mercy, I may not understand mercy unless I've read over and over how the people of God deserve his wrath. But God, being being rich in mercy, doesn't give them the thing that they deserve. Why? Because of his great love for he, that he has for his people, the promises that are made in Christ. He chooses for himself a remnant of those people. Though over and over his people deserve to be completely wiped out, completely wiped out, he's always preserved them because he could not give them up, because he could not give himself up. Again, not because there's just a few good ones left and, I, and it's not as if God is looking down on His people and He's like, I'd hate to wipe them out because these two are so good. No one is good. No one seeks after God. No one understands. No, not one. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, came down to us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. It's not as if we met him halfway. There's no compromise with God. God does not help those who help themselves. No one can help themselves. In order to seek after him, we had to be changed. We had to be made alive. Look at verse 5 again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. In his mercy, we were spared. In an act of immeasurable grace, we have been made alive. This makes me think of John chapter 3 and Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. I encourage you to study that this week in light of Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus told Nicodemus that one must be born again in order to be saved. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this being born again is not the work of man, it's the work of the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus tells us. He told Nicodemus that it wasn't something he could do for himself, it was something that had to be done to him. And when we are born again, born of the Spirit of God, our eyes are open, then we see our sin, we see our need, we see our Savior, Jesus. And it's only then that we call out to Him because of the work that He has done in us. But not only that, in Christ, we read that we have been seated in the heavenly places. And that brings us to the next point, He seated us in heaven. Look with me again at verses 6-7. through seven. He raised us up. With him, him being Christ, him, and seated us with him 
in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might be or he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, the people of God, have been raised up. And this idea has a kind of twofold outworking. First, we have been raised up, literally, meaning that we have been born again in Christ, literally raised from the dead. Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, which points to the fact that in Him we have been made alive and in, in the fact that in Him we will be one day raised again. We look forward to, after being born again in Him, we look forward to being raised from the dead in Him. We have been born again, spiritually speaking, but though we have had this spiritual rebirth, we will all die physically. Yet in Christ, we await that physical resurrection to accompany the spiritual resurrection that has already taken place in our hearts. And so this, this idea of being raised up in Christ is speaking of this spiritual thing that has happened and this physical thing that will happen. It's a kind of already not yet, which you guys have heard me use lots of times. We already have the great blessings in Christ, yet one day there's going to be even more with the glorious return of Christ. Right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and in many ways we are seated with him in Christ. We haven't been perfected. We haven't been, of course, given his kind of authority at all, but we sit with him nonetheless as his covenant people, seeing his kingdom come to his earth as joint heirs with the king of all kings. And so why would God do this? So he's made us alive. He has brought us to new life. Why would he then seat us in the heavenly places as we read here? What, what is his purpose behind this? Well, let's look at verse 7. So that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is from John 1, verse 18 and following. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. It's almost as if John couldn't quite describe the immeasurable riches that we have in Christ. And so he just said, grace upon grace. There's just so much that we can't even know. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We experience this now in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, this is something that we taste now here on this earth. But think about how much more are we going to experience it with him. In glory. So we get to the point in this letter, right, where we've read about that we are dead in our trespasses. Even before that, we've read that God has a redemptive plan for his people that he has, from the foundation of the earth, he has set forth this plan. He has planned out the way they're going to be saved. He has a redeemer. And they're dead in their trespasses. And in Christ, they have to be made alive. And so imagine coming to the point in this letter Stopping at verse 7 and reading, well, God, that's great and all, 
But what's my part in this? If you come out of chapter 1, if you've read chapter 1 thoroughly, and you've read it to completion, thinking that any of this has to do with us, then chapter 2 should stop you dead in your tracks. Literally, dead in your sins and trespasses. If you come out of chapter 1 thinking that you are somehow part of the eternal counsels of God concerning your own soul, then you've missed the big picture of the Bible, which Paul is essentially laying out here in these two chapters. A lot of times, a lot of people, probably you've heard people say this, well, Jesus died to give us that choice. You've probably all heard that. Lord knows I've heard it. Imagine Jesus dying the Son of Man, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, coming down to earth, sacrificing Himself before a sinful and finite man to give me the choice to not choose Him. Imagine thinking that you have it in you to make the choice, the right choice after all that we've read already concerning who we are outside of Christ dead in our trespasses, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Go back to Genesis. Those who do evil only ever continually. Coming to the point where we say to God, well, God, I've thought about this and you finally convinced me. I'm going to follow you. Paul anticipated this. As we read, we see this. Paul anticipated this desire for human autonomy. As you read through his books, you see this same sort of anticipation. Our desire to take credit for things that we can't do, much less things that we wouldn't do. And so that's why we have verses 8 and 9, which are two of the most quoted verses from the New Testament. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Remember, this is God that's done all of this, but we need to be reminded, verse 8, for By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. By grace. Whose grace? God's. Through faith. Whose? God's. Just in case we don't get it, he makes it plain. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Well, someone will say, well, it's my faith to give. I've heard that so many times. And I always ask, where did you get it from? Were you waiting for the right God to come along? To place your faith in Him? Everything that I read says that I'm born in sin, not born with faith. Everything that I read says that I'll only ever choose evil, that I'm a son of disobedience, that I'm a child of wrath. Not born with faith, just waiting for the right God to come along so I can give it to Him, almost giving Him a gift. Yes, it is true that we must call out to Jesus by faith. But the means... To call out to Him by faith is His gift to us. We could not 
And understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are listening here that may not be a follower of Jesus, not only could we not, we would not do otherwise. Even if you do some Greek gymnastics here, which a lot of people like to do here to make it seem like grace is the gift and faith isn't, you still have to account for the fact that you are claiming that a dead man is able to, by a faith all his own, call out to a God that he hates. For us to call out to God, we must be made alive. By grace, through faith, we must call upon his name. And this is not our doing, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the gift of God. Why? So that we wouldn't boast. All boasting is out the window when we consider the truth of the gospel. I mean, it makes me think of one of my favorite characters in the Bible. You've probably seen the quote on one of the walls here. I couldn't tell you which wall because I don't pay attention to things. I just know that it's on the wall. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I encourage you to read his story again in light of what we've been talking about. He was the crippled grandson of King Saul, the man who tried to kill David over and over again. Yet David, being rich in mercy, because of the great love that he had for Jonathan, invited Mephibosheth to eat at his table all of his days. Why would he do that? That was his enemy. So that he might show him the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward his brother Jonathan. After reading that, no one would come away from that story. No one reads 2 Samuel 9 and says, Congratulations, Mephibosheth. It's the best choice you'll ever make in your life. It was not his doing. It's the gift of David. There's no way Mephibosheth could boast. Imagine Mephibosheth, this crippled man, sitting at the table. Yep, I've done so much to earn my place here. You've done nothing. You should have been killed. But he wasn't. He was given a seat at the table with the king. That isn't to say that in Christ, however, understand this, that there isn't any good that we can do. In fact, to the contrary, we are told just the opposite, that we should be doing good. And that brings us to the final point. He prepared us for good works. Look with me at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think if you read verse 10, particularly in light of verses 8 and 9, you get a much fuller idea of what's going on here. The work that was done above... Verses 8 and 9, and really above that is all God's alone, right? And Paul sums that up here in 10 by saying we are his workmanship. We are the thing that he has made, his creation in Christ Jesus. And why did he do that? Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. And so notice here, people struggle here. As soon as you say good works in the church, people are like, well, we're not saved by those. Paul's not saying that. I'm not saying that. 
Notice the salvation's already happened. It's already happened, right? It's already happened in verses 1 through 9. That salvation's already occurred. Whose work is it? God's alone. A dead man cannot recreate himself. That work is the work of God by the will of the Father and the Son, breathed to new life by the Spirit of God. Now that we are saved by God, we are created to go out and do good works. Not to earn our salvation. Again, how could we? There's no way. We just read that. But that person who is saved will be doing the works of God because God has created them beforehand that we would walk in them. This is why James, the apostle, this is why he says, faith apart from works is dead. They, they have to coexist. Because the one that he, the one that is God's workmanship has been created for good works. That we would walk in them. By grace, through faith, you've been saved. That salvation necessarily produces works. Because God has created them beforehand that we should walk in them. So understand the implication for this, believers, and the imperative that is here, that we would walk in these good works that have been prepared for us beforehand. Go, walk in the good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. Go, do good, so that the world will look on and glorify God. This is what Jesus called us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, go, let your light shine before others so that they would see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It'd be really easy for us to think, well, God did all the work and so now I'm going to do nothing. And some will do that. Honestly, some do that in fear of being called a legalist. Me standing here saying, go out and do good works will cause some to say, are you trying to tell me that good works save me? No. Where could I possibly come up with anything remotely close to that in the Bible? We just read through chapter 2 of Ephesians, which completely denies that the works of man do anything. It actually says that man cannot do anything except for those things that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's no way that I could come up with that. You cannot read Ephesians chapter 2 and come away with works-based salvation in any form unless you just refuse to understand the language. But in the same way, and hear this, you cannot come away from Ephesians 2 and to think that those who are made alive in Christ shouldn't be doing good works. What did Jesus say right after he said the verse I quoted earlier? He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. The whole law is fulfilled in him. Every single bit of it. He didn't leave a bit of it for us to figure out. He fulfilled every stroke of the pen. So then I am free. You are free to follow each commandment perfectly. Not because we have to, but because in Christ Jesus, I have been created to do those things. 
We've been teaching through the Ten Commandments here on Wednesday night, and if you're like me, when we read through the larger catechism's treatment of those commandments, you're probably left thinking, thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to do this perfectly. Because there's no way. All the commas in those in those catechism questions. There's so much there. If you think you've if you think you've got it down, just read a little bit further. You don't. So then what do I see those commandments? Hopefully we as Christians see those commandments as opposed to a a list of things that we can't possibly fulfill. They've been fulfilled in Christ. Let's see them as ways that He is growing us. I see them as a list of commandments that God is teaching me more and more about how to obey. How to align my life according to these things that He's given me. These works were prepared beforehand that you and I might walk in them. And until He calls us to glory, that is exactly what we should be doing. When Neo was brought to life in the Matrix, he used his newfound understanding to help others. I won't spoil the movie, but it's kind of silly. But how, how much more? Real people in a real world with a real Savior... How much more should we be doing the work of God so that people can see Him and glorify His name in all the earth? If you're here and you're maybe understanding this for the first time, this idea that God has done the work for you, it could be that just right now you are hearing and understanding this gospel truth for the first time. You were dead in your trespasses, but God has made you alive. In obedience to Him, call out by faith and be saved. This is the gift of God. But for those of us in Christ, this faith that we have is a gift of God. Let us walk in the good works that he's prepared us for us beforehand so that the world might know that Jesus is Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, Lord, help us to come away with an understanding that you have done the work. Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to find rest in the fact that you did the work completely. That you didn't leave some for us to finish up. That there's none of our atonement that it was left undone that we just need to make right. That we have been made right. And so, Lord, then help us to go out and do good things. Help us to go out and do the works that you have prepared for us beforehand. Help us to walk in them. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.